The single best predictor of high school graduation is third grade reading level. If a child is not reading at grade level at third grade, they're four times less likely to graduate high school than if they are. And if they're a low income kid who's not reading at grade level by third grade, they're nine times less likely to graduate. How long can we keep kids at home before they're not going to be reading at grade level, given that we believe that they're not getting a meaningful education? From my perspective, I feel very, very strongly that children need to go back to school, that it needs to be a priority. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Wise Words, the show where we talk to the world's leading minds in education and beyond. This is Bassem, producer of the show, and who you just heard speaking is this episode's guest, Dr. Dimitri Christakis, director of the Center for Child Health, Behavior and Development. If you're a returning listener, you may have heard him speaking in a previous episode last December where he discussed early childhood education and the role of tech. This time, he joins us to discuss public health education in the context of an ongoing global pandemic. A lot of great things to learn from this discussion recorded back in July. And once again, thanks for joining us and let us know your thoughts by sending us a message on our social media channels through the links in the description. And don't forget to subscribe to Wise Words if you haven't done so already on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud or your preferred podcast app. We'll now switch to host and CEO of Wise, Stavros Yunuka, to kick off the show. My name is Stavros Yanuka. I'm the chief executive of WISE, and it's my uh, pleasure to welcome back to the podcast uh, Professor Dimitri Christakis. Uh, Professor Christakis is the George Adkins Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Washington and the director of the Center for Child Health, Behavior, and Development at Seattle Children's Research Institute, and he's an attending pediatrician uh, at Seattle Children's Hospital. Uh, he's a graduate of Yale, uh, the UPenn School of Medicine, uh, and the University of Washington School of Public Health. Professor Christakis has authored over 230 original research articles, uh, a textbook on pediatrics, and a uh, popular science book called The Elephant in the Living Room, Make Television Work for Your Kids. Uh, in 2010, he was awarded the Academic Pediatric Association Research Award for Outstanding Contributions to pediatric research over his career. Now, his passion is developing actionable strategies uh, to optimize the cognitive, emotional, and social development of preschool children. And the pursuit of that passion has taken him from the exam room to the community, and most recently, uh, to cages of newborn mice. Uh, Professor Christakis' laboratory focuses on the effects of early environmental influences on child health and development, uh, and his work has been featured on all major international news outlets, as well as major national and international uh, newspapers. He's a frequent speaker to uh, international audiences, and we had the pleasure in November of welcoming him to uh, the WISE Global Summit, uh, where we recorded our first po- podcast. Dimitri, welcome back to WISE Words. Pleasure to be back. I'm glad that there's some time left after that introduction, Stavros. <laughs> Well, you know, you, you're, you're uh, distinguished and you've done a lot, so it's, it's, it's your fault, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, really, really good to have you back, uh, Dimitri. And, and our, last, you know, our last podcast was very much focused uh, on, uh, you know, on, on sort of digital media and the impact of digital media on social health, uh, on, on the health of, uh, of, of children. We're in a very different world now. Uh, and in in some respects, it's a 
uh, it's a world that brings together two strands of your career. Uh, the one focused on your cognitive uh, development uh, of young children and in particular the, the impact of digital media being part of that. Uh, and of course, the sphere of public health. So I think this is a very timely podcast. So let, first of all, let me just ask, how are you doing and, and how... Uh, what's the situation like in in Seattle and and in in your? Yeah, thanks. I mean, you know, we've been we've been on um, sort of modified lockdown mode here in the state of Washington now four and a half months. I haven't I have not been to my office uh, since March. I've been working from home. I have the privilege and the of being able to work from home, and and my laboratory has slowed down as a result because some of the experiments we do require in person visits. A lot of the scientists in my center have been able to continue the research remotely, but it's 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 definitely had an impact. But you know, the impact is measured in many different domains, right? I mean, I we we focus a lot on work, but I think a lot about mental health, and I think particularly about the the different impacts this has on different sectors of our society, in particular children, who are my passion. I think are are bearing the brunt in many ways of the uh, of the impact of this virus, and interestingly not because of the direct effects of the virus, right? We know enough to know that children are at very low risk of having serious consequences from this virus itself, but they're having serious consequences from the indirect effects of the virus in terms of their of its impact on their, their mental health, on their ability to go to school, to socialize with their friends. And of course, it's it's having them spend a lot more time with screens, a lot more than they were already spending, which was an inordinate amount. So that that actually brings me to to one of the sort of broad topics that I'd like us to to talk about today, which is, you know, the the question of public health education. I mean, to to what extent is the pandemic actually not the the pandemic itself may not be a result of a failure in, of, of public health education, but but certainly the uh, let's say the patchy and uneven response might be interpreted as a failure of public health education. To what extent are you, are you satisfied, not satisfied with the level of public health education as you, as you observe it? Well, you know, in the United States, which is where I live, uh, yes, we've had a very, very bad... Uh, public health has failed on many levels, right? We failed to respond adequately to the virus initially. Uh, that was a failure of leadership at the highest level. And now we're also having issues around people's willingness to follow certain public health measures. The uptake of the things that we know that can limit virus spread is spotty, it's uneven, it's been um, unfortunately politicized, which uh, has had all kinds of untoward consequences. And even as we look forward to the possible solution to this, which will in my opinion, only be a vaccine. The vaccine will only work if we achieve what we call herd immunity, which is to say that we need about 60 to 70% of people to be immune to the virus, which probably means we need to immunize more than that because vaccines are rarely 100% effective. And already in the United States, we're seeing that a sizable percentage of people, estimated between 30 and 40%, don't trust the public health system enough to to take the vaccine. So that's going to be a challenge that we face here. Um, obviously, other countries will have different challenges. Is I mean, is this is this a result of, I guess now notorious anti-vaxxer movement? 
that, that you're seeing this kind of fall in the in the trust levels? You know, it's it, it, in, in part. You know, it's it, it's fascinating, Stavros, because I, I actually posted on Facebook uh, months ago. Seems like years ago now. You know, we lose track of time when when this first started. That the um, this would be a real interesting test of anti-vaxxers because traditionally anti-vaxxers in most countries have the luxury of benefiting from herd immunity. So it's easy for me to not immunize my child against against measles, mumps, and rubella when. 80% of children are, right? Yeah. I sort of take advantage of the fact that everybody else is vaccinated. It's um uh free rider. But it's a free and so I posited, free. perhaps incorrectly, that they would have a very different attitude when a uh COVID vaccine came out because there is no herd immunity. And in fact, it would really test to what extent is their belief truly anti-vaccine, or is it really sort of uh, bolstered by a by a certain amount of selfishness that you cannot believe in vaccines when everybody else is taking them. So we'll 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 see the test. I mean, the real proof is in the pudding, as they say, right? When the vaccine is actually available and we know more about it, do people in fact get it? But uh, right now, anyway, it looks like in fact a large percentage of people won't. Part of that, I think, is the is the anti-vaxxer movement, as you said, and I think part of it here has been kind of again a misrepresentation or a poor communication plan about how this vaccine is coming to market. All of this talk of Operation Warp Speed, that we're going to, we've never brought a vaccine to market this fast, which is in fact true. It's remarkable. I mean, if this vaccine is in fact in the field in January, which is the earliest projection, it will be a period of six months. And the fastest vaccine we've ever brought to market before has been four years. So it is in fact remarkably fast. But all of that communication strategy around how fast we're bringing it has led some people, I think, understandably, if not rightly, to question whether or not corners are being cut, whether or not this vaccine is going to be as safe as it otherwise would be. And, and the other interesting thing about this vaccine, Stavros, is that it's going to be a very, very different approach, right? Traditionally, in most countries, we vaccinate children to protect the rest of us. We do this for two reasons. One, children are typically at greatest risk for most infectious diseases. And two, they're notorious for spreading diseases amongst themselves and to parents. So the typical strategy has been to vaccinate children and to require vaccination for school entry as a way of achieving a high level of penetrance. Well, this virus is very, very different from what we know. From what we know, it doesn't actually impact children very much at all. And it's not yet clear to what extent children actually transmit it. Emerging evidence suggests that they are not important vectors the way they are with other infectious diseases. But the simple fact that they're at low risk for the disease means that, that they, would be, um, it would, they should be the last group to be vaccinated, right? Because whatever, whatever we do, whenever you do a vaccine, whenever you do any treatment, you always want to make sure the treatment is not worse than the disease. So until we know a lot about this vaccine, we shouldn't vaccinate people who, for whom the disease itself doesn't pose a huge risk, especially if they don't transmit it. So I, I think it's going to have serious implications for how we achieve herd immunity. It's going to have to be that we make adults get vaccinated, which is something we've never done, right? It's going to be, instead of schools, it's going to be workplaces that say, you know, you can't come to work if you're not vaccinated. 
it's going to be an interesting challenge. Yeah, and again, I mean, just to sort of uh, reflect on on what you said earlier, that again is also going to be another test of of how committed certain people are to this idea of not, you know, not vaccinating if they're unable, say, to access their workplace without some sort of certification. Um, but you know, on on the broader issue though of of this kind of skepticism towards towards uh, you know vaccines and more broadly science, I guess. I mean, I had written several years ago about this, and you know, and and cited a couple of interesting studies that actually showed uh, an almost inverse correlation between levels of education and skepticism towards science, particularly in the West. So, um, if you had a college degree in in the West, you were more likely to be skeptical about things like vaccines than um, than if you had a you know a, a high school um, diploma. What I mean, do you have any thoughts about why you know why and how we got got ourselves into this um, into this situation and what what might we do about it? That's a good question. You know, I think part of it is, in some respects, science has itself to blame um, for a certain degree of the skepticism because I think we have a tendency to overstate our findings and understate our methodology. Right? Those of us that do science understand implicitly in our core that it's an iterative process, that what I say today is based on everything I know today. And I'm perfectly comfortable with the fact that it might be completely wrong, right? And a year from now, everything I thought was true is not true. That's the extreme example, right? But more typically, it's that things become nuanced. And yet we've had several, uh, and yet, and, and but what happens too often is that science projects itself as if it's, um, it has an answer or it has the answer, which means that when, when the answer changes, it tends to look like the process is flawed. It subverts the process. Whereas in fact, all of us know, all of us scientists know that that is the process, that it is iterative. Um, and, and there've been spectacular failures, right. That have gotten a lot of attention. Um, in the most famous of which in the United States anyway, and I think in the world is sort of what constitutes a healthy diet. The food pyramid that I grew up with um, was was spectacularly wrong. The things that we thought were healthy, the diets we thought were healthy, have have now been shown to not be healthy. Um, so every time I think science scientists or science ends up with egg on their face, as the expression goes in the, in, in this culture, I think it it adds fuel to the fire of those that say. You know, scientists make this up. It's not real. It doesn't um, it doesn't add anything. So I think we need a, a, a broader kind of educational campaign around how science works, and and we need to have more humility as scientists when we present our findings. Yeah. No. And and you know, I I, I mean, I again, it's it's uh, it's big of you in a sense as a scientist to to uh, to, to shoulder part of the responsibility. I mean, not not personally, but as a, as a <laughs> it's my uh, fault. It's all my fault. As a, group, yeah. <laughs> as a group, but but I also think I mean there's, there's there's issues around the way that things are reported, right? I mean, we we tend to want to focus, you know, on the on the exciting headline, right? And the the nuance gets lost um, in in the fine print, so to speak. Um, you know, I think, you know, the, the sort of attention, uh, or short attention, 
uh, economy that we've kind of gotten ourselves into favors the the kind of the 10, 15 minute TED talk, you know, over over the you know the longer again more nuanced perhaps more boring um, conversation around what it is that we really know and don't know. Um, and then there's also funding, right? Issues around funding that if you know if you want to get funded. You know, very often, you know, going in and saying, "Well, you know, I, you know, I'm, I, I think this, but I'm not sure about this," and that, you know, is unlikely to get you, you know, big, big funding versus going in all guns blazing and saying, "You know, I think I have the cure for X, Y, Z here." So, you know, I, I mean, it's a, it's a complex issue, I guess. Is, I agree. Is, I agree. Is, is coming from. I agree, and 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 you know, regrettably, uh, at least in the United States currently, the the distrust of science, the distrust of education, is um, is being propagated by um, by uh, people fairly high up in our administration. Um, you know, I think I, I, that obviously varies by culture. I mean, in in you know, in the in the Greek culture that I'm familiar with outside of the U.S., there's an enormous amount of respect for scientists. I mean, the presumption is that their education offers a lot. Um, and that's clearly true in some parts of the United States and some subpopulations. But, but the idea that there's a general willingness to say these elite, that education somehow puts you out of touch, that misinforms you, is, is really a toxic notion, right? I mean, I, you know, humanity has benefited so much through education. We think of it as the great equalizer. We think of it as the, as the, as the engine of progress. And that anyone would somehow denigrate it, it does a huge disservice to uh, to all of us. If we um, if we go turn back now to the to sort of the current situation we find ourselves in, I know that you uh, uh, in in some of our early exchanges setting up this podcast, you mentioned to me that you were um, you were involved in, uh, in in trying to figure out school uh, reopening. Um, I wonder what you know. It's it's been a few months now since I think our uh, our first exchange. But what what have you you know what's happening on that front? And what's you know what's your advice in terms of how people should think about school reopening? You know, it's it's been the, the major focus of my work really since the pandemic started here. I mean, I you know it impacted me personally. Both of my children were in college and both of them had to come home and miss out on, on sort of essential opportunities for learning that happened in person. Uh, I mentioned before that we know that young children are not affected by the virus. I, it's worth putting some numbers to it for your audience, you know, so because I think parents um, are un, unduly concerned. So if your child, you're, when I say child, under the age of 18, gets COVID, there's about a one in 500 chance that they will be hospitalized. And there's a one in 100,000 chance that they will die from it. To give you some perspective, there's a one in 15,000 chance that your child will be struck by lightning over their lifetime. So much more likely to be struck by lightning than they are to die of COVID, even if they get it. Now, there is a risk that they might transmit it to other people, uh, including to vulnerable adults in our own homes. So that's, that's a real risk. But we have to start with the understanding that the children themselves are at very, very low risk. Now, what are they at high risk for? They're really at high risk for having significant detriments to their education from not being physically present, particularly the youngest kids. In the U.S., and I think in most of the world, we went from a situation where none of us really knew what distance learning was. None of us were really very prepared for it, either the school systems, the teachers, the students. 
overnight to transitioning to this distance learning model. People that do distance learning, even those that are advocates for it, fully admit that it doesn't work for primary school kids. The idea that you would expect a six, seven, eight-year-old to stare at Zoom all day and get the same educational experience that he or she would get in person, both by the way, from the cognitive perspective, right, the transmission of information, if you will, the simplest, most fundamental element of education doesn't lend itself very well to young children learning through a screen. Never mind the fact that a huge amount of the educational experience for kids that young is their social emotional learning, their peer interactions, all of which requires that they be physically present. We've prevented these kids from having an in-person experience for about four months. I want to give some more numbers to put some context here. Given that we believe that primary school education doesn't work with, through a distance model, we have to operate in the assumption that unless parents were homeschooling their kids, many schools, many children weren't getting much of an education at all. Now, how does that play out at a population level? Well, the single best predictor of high school graduation is third grade reading level. If a child is reading, if a child is not reading at grade level, at third grade, they're four times less likely to graduate high school than if they are. And if they're a low-income kid who's not reading a grade level by third grade, they're nine times less likely to graduate. How long can we keep kids at home before they're not going to be reading a grade level, given that we, uh, we believe that they're not getting a meaningful education? So from my perspective, I feel very, very strongly that children need to go back to school, that it needs to be a priority, that Primary school children in particular need to be physically present for however many hours a week we think they need schooling, and that middle and secondary kids need to have some physical presence and some blended model with distance learning. What's, how do we get then kids? I mean, there's a couple of things to, to unpack, right? One is, you know, you, you've again, I think, highlighted an interesting shortcoming in most people's, you know, education, let's, let's, let's say, and that's, you know, how, how to assess and think about risk. We're notoriously bad at doing that, um, you know, uh, left to our own devices. And I don't think our education system actually does a very good job of teaching us how to think, um, think about risk. So there's, there's that sort of uh, uh, element to what you said. And then the second, of course, the more immediate uh, issue is is around okay so how all of what you said you know resonates how do we then make sure that reopening is quote unquote safe right so the first thing we have to say is that um, it's not going to be one hundred percent safe and I think that's what the very first barrier we have to overcome is this expectation that school is going to be completely safe it's not. It never is. It never, it right? never was. Correct. It never was. It never yeah. was. That's exactly right. Right? Mm. So, you know, that, that has been the first kind of misrepresentation of this situation. And in fact, on the task force that I'm on, where our recommend, I can't speak to the recommendations, are coming out next week. Um, that was sort of what the school, super, the school superintendent, the school representatives started with. We'll go back to school when it's safe. And I asked them what, what does safe mean? And they said, well, when there's no risk of children getting COVID, that, that, that may be five years from now, <laughs> right? I mean, you know, because even when we have a vaccine, uh, there's still going to be some transmission. I mean, you know, there's, there's never going to be zero. So um, 
That said, there are many things we do we can do to reduce the risk um, and make it safer or as safe as possible, if you will. Um, uh, and 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 those include the things that we already know: uh, hand hygiene, social distancing, mask wearing for kids who are old enough and developmentally able to do so. Um, I think the most important thing, though, we should think about is protecting the people in the school system that are at high risk. So teachers and staff, they should have medical grade personal protective equipment um, to protect themselves. And with we know from the medical setting that if you use personal protective equipment and take the appropriate steps, your risk of contracting the disease can be vanishingly close to zero, even in the medical setting, which is a very, very high risk one. So teachers and staff can be safe if we give them the opportunity and the tools to be safe. Students can reduce their risk by, uh, by some structural things, by trying to reduce the class density, by having them wear masks, we talked about social distancing. Um, and the other model that I really like, Stavros, that I think is a good one, is what's called kind of a pod approach. So to take students and create classes or pods that um, that stay together so they don't mingle with other students. That has the effect of reducing the uh, number of kids that each child is exposed to, whereby they might get the virus. But it also, if there is an outbreak in a school, it reduces the chances that it spreads throughout the school and um, and may only be contained in, in one smaller pod. Um, so you know these are the those are the sort of the simple steps that that can be taken to reduce the risk, um, but I and I you know and, and the other part is we talked about science before, you know in some respects it's, this is one of those scenarios where we're building a car while we're driving it. I mean we're still learning a lot about this virus and its risk and most importantly how it spreads. Um, I don't think children are a major vector. I can't say that for sure. I don't want to fall into the trap of making a mistake and having to correct myself, as we talked about before. But we will know a lot more uh, six weeks from now than we know now. As kids start to go back to school, we should build in a robust research program to figure out what, uh, what their transmissibility is. And just, I, I mean, was was there again? I know you can't disclose the, you know, the recommendations, but was there sort of any discussion, for example, around, you know, maybe refocusing the the curriculum as part of part of the solution? In other words, you know, doing trying to do less, but but doing it much better. And so, so for example, if reading is the real, you know, is, is the real core element here. Um, presumably numeracy is up there as well in terms of, you know, of, of kind of foundational skills that kind of set you up then for uh, learning how to learn. Um, was there any discussion around that? So, so, you know, trying to do less in a shorter period of time, maybe as another risk mitigation attempt? Um, well, two things. First, I want to focus on, believe it or not, um, I, what I said before, I want to double down on it. Reading is the best predictor of third grade reading better than math. And the reason for that is that it has a lot to do with the way school systems are structured. So up until the child, up until third grade, we put a lot of emphasis on helping children learn to read. Starting from fourth grade on, we use that skill as a way to get them to learn more, right? So um, even the numeracy we do early on is less important than the reading, because if you can't read, 
well, fluently, you don't learn math either because there's math textbooks are one of the prime, right? We switch, the school switches to an expectation, a foundational expectation that you're able to read well. Um, and they stop trying to teach you to read after third grade. So it's the single best predictor. Um, we did not get into uh, curricular elements. Um, it's an interesting point you made. We did talk about children's mental health quite a bit because I think that's going to be one of the things that schools are going to have to deal with in a way they haven't before. Um, data from China suggests that there's a, about a 25 to 30% increase in depression and anxiety in kids that have been locked down. Um, so they're going to be returning to school not only probably six to nine months behind in terms of their uh, cognitive skills, but they're going to have an increased risk or there's going to be an increased prevalence of psychological problems that um, teachers need to be prepared to recognize, um, to deal with, to make referrals as needed. Um, again, you know, we already, I mean, in the base case, we have extraordinary expectations of our teachers, not just to teach our children, obviously, which is sort of the fundamental aspect of their job, but all of these other things uh, that are typically foisted on teachers, we're foisting a lot more on them now. So, um, you know, I hope they're up for the challenge. I mean, one one of the things that we've been sort of talking about um, as wise, you know, through this this podcast, but but also through our um, digital convenings is you know, is, is the extent to which this crisis is an opportunity to, to, to have a fundamental rethink of, of how we do education, you know, what we teach, when we teach. And it sounds to me, though, that we're, we're maybe not, I don't know, not thinking um, aggressively enough. Maybe, I don't know if that's the, the right word, but I mean, let, let me give you an example. If, if we're worried, as, as you rightly say, that you know, kids have now lost, you know, a good four months of education, right? Or maybe more, right? And if this is, you know, if this virus is going to be with us for at least another year, you know, what are we going, you know, why aren't we talking about um, some sort of remedial education or even rethinking the whole, you know, structure of the school, of the academic calendar? I mean, why, why are we stuck on a September to June? Absolutely. Uh, schedule, which as far as I can tell is, is, you know, purely was designed to accommodate the Northern Hemisphere agricultural cycle. <laughs> you that, know, that's at, that's at exactly point, what it was. Most people work the land. Now we, we have barely, you know, 5% of our uh, workforce, you know, working the land. And, you know, why, why don't we have year round school? And, and, you know, think, things like, is anyone talking about? Well, about you know, interestingly, year-round school is something that's been, rec we were talking about it before. Yeah. Some of us were, I was, uh, for a lot of reasons that have nothing to do with COVID, that have a lot to do with the fact that there's what's called the summer learning uh, loss, right? So the reason I said kids are going to be six to nine months behind is because we the, m many kids, particularly low-income kids, show up having lost three months from the summer. Yeah. So you add the yeah, we're, we're add adding the on now another four yeah. months. So yes, there's a lot of reasons to talk about year round year round schooling, um, and and this is an opportunity to do that. School systems are different around the world. I can speak to the United States one. Um, there are a lot of entrenched interests around the nine month school year, right? Most notably, teachers 
who went into this profession with that kind of structural expectation. They've built their lives around it. They're paid commensurate with it. It's not an easy, and the reason we haven't seen a move to year-round school, at least in the U.S., has been the pushback from teachers that that's not something that they want. Uh, But you're right, this is an opportunity to rethink all of it. You know, every crisis is an opportunity, and this really should be uh, a time for us to, to think about all of these things. The other one I want to focus on, which you alluded to, is, is this role of technology. You know, I mean, bef- before COVID, one of the things that was keeping me up at night, one of the things that I was struggling with trying to figure out was the role of technology in schools themselves, so-called ed tech. You know, there's been a tendency to fetishize it, for lack of a better word, to really believe that technology in the classroom is some kind of a panacea that will elevate all children. The research on that is, frankly, to say the least, uh, conflicted, not conclusive. It's clear that technology in some situations add value. It's clear in other cases that it does not. And it's clear in some cases it actually seems to, con- to do harm, that, that, that too much tech in the classroom impedes learning. And now we have a situation which, where we're fundamentally reliant on technology. It's not even optional, right? We suddenly have to use it full time or at least in large part, to, to, to educate our children. So that, too, is an opportunity to, tar- to really think about what role technology can play and, and how, can, how can Zoom add value, not just today, but when we do go back in person? What elements of this can we uh, introduce or reintroduce or maintain in the more traditional learning environment so that we uh, maximize whatever benefits Zoom can offer. No, I, I mean, again, I, I, you know, I find myself in sort of violent agreement with you on this. And, and I think, again, part of the problem and, and, you know, what I've sort of been picking up talking to various people um, these past several months is, is, is that part of the problem, I think, is, is the way that we use technology. In other words, we're trying to recreate the physical world virtually. So, you know, we're using Zoom as if it's the same as, as a classroom, right? And we're using computers as if they're, you know, substitutes for, the, for, for you know, pen and paper. We're not really rethinking the, the pedagogy that's involved or that needs to, 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 um, to be adapted to make best use of, of what the possibilities are for technology, right? So it's in some ways it's no surprise that you know that that we may even be getting detrimental results because you know these tools were not designed in a sense as substitutes for the physical world at least in my mind uh, they were right so so I think part of the answer is really to 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 think you know what what is it that they can do much better so for example there's a company called Labster that helps design virtual labs you know, for uh, high schools and colleges, right? Um, that to me is a, is, a, is a good example of uh, good use of technology, right? So you obviously a virtual lab, you know, can supplement a physical lab, it can replace it, and it allows you, for example, to repeat experiments, you know, uh, an almost infinite number of times, something you wouldn't be able to, um, to do in a physical lab without, you know, incurring great expense and time and all that. So, so not surprisingly, some of their studies, um, you know, are showing 
improve learning outcomes. I think we need again to to think you know think think differently about how we deliver education through technology and not use it as a as a substitute or a kind of band aid um, to replace physical uh, contact. I I totally agree. I also think that we need. To, I mean, this is the scientist in me. I think that what we 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 also need to build in a robust research platform agenda. Exactly because. You know, that's not what we're doing now. We tend to introduce these things willy-nilly. There's a lot of special interest behind them, uh, a lot of industry money, a lot of industry-focused studies. And that leaves us, in many cases, uh, uh, uncertain about what the best way to do it. And, and, and frankly, the way to improve it, right? Because research doesn't only give you the answer about whether or not something works. It, it gives you powerful tools to figure out how to make it better. And, and, and so really the question becomes not uh, do we have technology or not, because I'm, I'm not a Luddite. I certainly feel that we need to have it. But I'm not sure about how to maximize the benefit from it. So even in your laboratory example, um, how much, what's the blend of computer lab and real lab? What's the sequencing? Maybe you, you do a few dry runs you know, on the computer and then you go do it in the real lab right? Maybe it's iterative. You go back and forth. Uh, there are any number of ways that this could be optimized. Um, and it can be tested very, very easily, uh, even in the setting of one school or one class even, right? Teachers could experiment on their own with some training, um, trying different approaches. And, and it may even be at the level of students, you know? I mean, children are different. Different children learn differently, and that's the other challenge around technology is that we sort of t- we've introduced it whole cloth, every ch- one laptop per child or an entire classroom that's now computerized. Maybe that's not what we need. Maybe it's an, it, it, at the student level. Maybe certain children benefit from laptops. Uh, certain children benefit from computer use and others don't. And maybe it provides a hybrid model for teachers where they can sort of identify students for whom the virtual lab will work very well and it gives them more opportunity to be hands-on with those for whom it does not. Now, you know, Dimitri, you, you touched, I think, on a, you know, on a, on a, on a point that I know is close to, uh, to, to the heart of what we're trying to do at WISE, which is to sort of introduce this idea of, you know, uh, embedding innovation labs within, you know, within our, you know, within our education systems precisely to do what you're, you're saying, right? To, to test new approaches, whether you know these involve tech or or not, but to do so in a kind of systematic, rigorous way, so that we you know we finally get you know get get a good handle on you know on what works and what doesn't when it comes to when it comes to learning. So in you know in, introducing science into into education not as a not as a topic but as an approach. Absolutely. And you know what? what's terrific about that, Stavros, is that the children themselves can then become part of it. What better way to sort of convey the role that science can play than to let students know that actually we are studying how you learn and you're part of that. And you're going to you'll we'll answer the question. You'll you'll answer it for yourself. I found that, you know, this approach worked better for me. Um, and I. In fact, why not have the students be part of the uh, of the science experiment, collect the data on themselves, look at the data, see how, in fact, um, it's working or not working? 
What better way to teach the scientific process? So what, what are you going to be, you know, looking ahead at the next, you know, six months or so? What, what's going to be the focus of, of your work and, you know, and, and how, you know, how can folks uh, find out more, more about what you, you know, what you're uh, involved with? So with respect to COVID in particular, um, right now we're, we, we will have our school report come out. I'm very curious to see what happens in the fall. We've just completed a national survey um, in the United States, which looks at both how families are coping with COVID and also how they're communicating the risks to children. You know, we talked a lot about the mental health of children and obviously it varies by age, but um, a big part of that has to do with to what extent parents buffer and transmit information related to, to the risks posed by COVID. And of course, for some children, those risks are they've already happened. There are many children that have lost grandparents, some that have lost uh, parents. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting time. None of us, it, it's been a hundred years since we've had a pandemic, which is long enough that there's no familial knowledge, right? There's not even a grandparent alive in most cases who could tell us what they did, how they coped. Um, right. So it's, 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 we're, we're, we're all figuring this out as we go along. Great. Dimitri, it's always, always great to, to talk to you. I think this has been, you know, a, a, a kind of a wide ranging discussion, but I, I certainly learned, uh, learned a lot, you know, need, needless to say when, um, when the survey is, is out and when, uh, when the recommendations, the school report recommendations are out to, to keep us posted, you know, we, you know, we'd love to sort of feature them, uh, somehow, because yes, they may relate to the U.S., but I still think there's, you know, significant learnings in there. Because you know, what, the one thing that you can say about this is, uh, you know, this uh, crisis is, you know, in one way or another, we've all experienced it. Um, you know, our experience has been different for sure, but uh, there is a sort of a, a kind of a universal, uh, you know, it's a universal reference of, of sorts, I guess, for uh, for, for our world. It was, it was a pleasure being here. And I, I really hope that I get to see you in person at some point, Stavros, that'll be a sign that the world is, the world has returned to normal. I I am sure we will. I'm sure we will, Dimitri. Good, good to have you with us. Take care. Bye-bye. And there you have it. Many thanks to Dr. Dimitri Christakis for joining us once again in this discussion. And thank you for tuning in. Once again, if you like this episode, don't forget to let us know by reaching out to us on our social media channels and let us know what you think. All the links for that are in the description. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you want more from Wise Words. Thanks for tuning in and looking forward to having you here next time very soon when we resume the next season of Wise Words beginning in early September 2020. Looking forward to seeing you there.